Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we examine the art and science of games. I am always Josh Blaster, and we got a great cast for you this week. We're going to be talking to an indie game developer who has not only been working on his game solo, but it is actually going to be due out this week, probably by the time you're listening to us right now. So please welcome, he is the creator of the game Bunker Punks, uh, Shane Neville. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on, Shane. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. Things are, things are looking good. The game's almost done, and <laughs> things are lining up. Great, and congratulations on getting Bunker Punk's finish. How long have you been working on the game for? Um, full-time. Uh, it's been four and a half years, mm. but about two of those years were full-time, and the other two and a half were part-time. Mm. It, yeah. it started four and a half years ago. Whew. I... I I've spoken to a few devs who've had those long-standing projects as well, and I can definitely tell from listening to them, I'm sure what we'll talk about later, it can be very tough to keep yourself going over that long period of time. Yeah, with Bunker Punks, it, it wasn't too bad because it, it's a roguelike, mm-hmm. and so every time you play it, it's different, and mm-hmm. uh, so just that in itself makes it a lot more fun to play, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it never... I'm excited to work on the next thing, but it's never been a grind, that's for sure. And that's always great to hear, because we've, I'm sure you as well, have heard the horror stories of developers who just really push themselves too far, and it can just break any sense of motivation to keep working. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But at least our story today has a happy ending. So <laughs> it's great to have you on. Like I said at the start, Shane has been working on Bunger Punk solo for four and a half years. He posted an article on Gamma Sutra about it as of last week by the time you're listening to this recorded. I'll include a link to that in the description below. But we'll be talking about both being a solo developer and about Bunger Punks for today's cast. To begin with, Shane, since this is your first time on, could you tell everybody listening a little bit about your background when it comes to the game industry? Yeah, um, well, I've been making games for 22, almost 23 years now. Uh, I got my start in the QA department at Electronic Arts Canada, testing games like FIFA Road to World Cup, NHL 98. Um, And then after about a year in QA, I moved into the development team on Need for Speed uh, as a writer actually was my mm. first job. And that led into a, a job as a producer and designer. Uh, I spent a few years there. Uh, then I, I left the industry for a couple of years to make BMX videos. So I, I toured the world going to nice. the X Games and things like that. Uh, then I spent five years on the ill-fated, but I insist today, great idea, the Engage. Um, they made a lot of mistakes. I was part of some of those mistakes, but we also made a lot of great games. And I think we pushed a lot of things forward that helped make you know mobile gaming today a lot more accessible. Uh, after that, I went over to Relic, where I was the producer on Company of Heroes Opposing Fronts. Nice. And then I moved out to the east coast of Canada to Prince Edward Island to run a studio called Longtail Studios. Um, we made a bunch of uh, casual games, um, We Dance on Broadway, uh, Best Friends Tonight for the Nintendo DS, most stuff most people haven't heard of. Uh, mm-hmm. We are doing some experimental things with story, which was what really attracted me to the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, in 2010, at the very beginning, I went indie. So I've been indie for eight and a half years now. And so 
as an indie, my first game was a little flash game called Ray Ardent Science Ninja. Uh, then I worked with a company called Slick Entertainment on a mobile game called Shellraiser. And that game did extremely well uh, on launch week. It was a top 10 uh, game in 40 different countries, um, won a bunch of awards. It's something I'm really proud of. It was one of the most fun I've ever had working on a game. And then after that, we made a bunch of prototypes and really couldn't get any traction. And I started working on Bunker Punks. And I've been working on that for the last four and a half years. Um, and then on the side, I do consulting. Uh, I also teach at Vancouver Film School in their game design program, where I'm, I'm most often a project mentor on the students' final projects. Great. And I think what's very funny is that probably for the younger people listening to this, they probably have no idea what the N-Gage was. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's a very fun piece of um, mobile game history right there for you folks. Yeah. <laughs> but it's great to have you on, Shane. Yeah. Definitely a very interesting career there in terms of what you've done. I guess as a somewhat of a, I guess as our first bit of a tangent, how was it going around, I guess, recording the BMX videos? It was great. Um, if if you look at, you know, my life, uh, my great passions, I, I love film, especially cartoons. I love video games and I've, I've been in love with BMX uh, since I think I was 12 years old. And so... It was really great traveling the world, becoming friends with people whose posters I had up on my wall when I was a kid. Um, and, you know, it's still a scene that I'm part of. You know, I've got back and knee problems now that I'm older, so I can't ride as much as I want. Mm -hmm. But I'm still in touch with a lot of people from that scene. I still follow the community. And it was amazing. You know, it was, uh, you know, you're traveling the world you know living like i wasn't a pro athlete i was part of the media but you still live that lifestyle of you know the parties and seeing people in germany one weekend and two weeks later you're in texas and two weeks later you're in japan and nice. you're traveling but you get to see each other all over the world and so you know i became friends with people from all corners of the globe and people that i'm still in touch with today uh you know just an amazing two years um it was great i loved it Nice. I'm also a big fan of cartoons as well. I mean, we're not careful. We could, who knows how many tangents we could segue into. Yeah. And as long as we don't go down the Steven Universe tangent, then we're fine. We, we won't go uh, down that spiral because I uh, could talk about that for hours. All right. But uh, with uh, Bunker Punk, so this is, so this was kind of like your first like full like indie title, like as a solo developer? Yeah, so I did a little Flash game, um, and that was just, you know, six months, yeah. and then I worked on a mobile game, Shellraiser, so it was my first one, um, and then it was the second solo game I did, and when I say solo, I, I did everything except for the, the audio and the music. The music is by Gord McGladiary, who goes by A Shell in the Pit, and uh, he made this amazing um, spaghetti western slash industrial soundtrack and all the the sound effects in the game are done by power up audio uh, and they're they've just won so many awards for audio design over the last few years and they're so well deserved they do a great job there um, but yeah so I've been working on Bunker Punks it was my first big outing you know as a paid game and uh, trying to get that wrapped around and figuring that whole side of things out uh, it was a lot of fun Mm -hmm. As you said a few minutes ago, you started the original concept for this back in 2010, right? Well, that was when I went indie. Okay. And so Bunker Punks, the, the idea came to me, it was probably in January, December or January, uh, four and a half years ago okay. was when it first kind of, the seed got planted. 
I guess, what attracted you to making, like, a roguelite or roguelike? Again, when it comes to the rogue genre, we can get very uh, specific about the yes. title there. Yeah, and there's a lot of people who are very specific about that, and I totally appreciate that. Um, but, it, you know, at the time, I was playing a lot of roguelikes, and, uh, you know, whether, like, that was, um, you know, Spelunky was huge at the mm-hmm. time, and... Uh, don't starve was in its early days and there were a lot of interesting games coming out with procedural generation. And, uh, I'm a self-taught programmer. I didn't study computer science in university or anything like that. And I wanted something that would really push me out of my comfort zone. And procedural generation is something, especially on like a 3d scale. If you know, you want to teach yourself stuff, that's, that's a big thing to pick up. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also wanted to make something that, you know, could be played over and over again, um, not just as a player, but also as a developer. And so mm-hmm. that that replayability was something that was exciting for me. Mm-hmm. And before we talk a little bit more specifically about some of the design of Bunker Punks, for folks listening to us right now who haven't heard of the game yet, could you kind of give them like the elevator pitch of what it is? Yeah, so Bunker Punks is a fast-paced retro FPS. Um, so the, the side side strafing and running forward and running back of your enemies of the old school first person shooters like doom and quake and things like that. I wanted to capture that feel. Um, but I also wanted a larger macro game. Um, and in bunker punks, that's your base building. And so between, uh, levels, you go back to your base and you can build different rooms and upgrade those rooms. And it acts as a nonlinear skill tree. Mm-hmm. And so very, very broad in how you can play the game. You want to play as a sniper. You want to play as somebody who rushes in and smashes things. You can experiment with different builds. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you listening to us right now, I've had a chance to only play maybe like 20 minutes of the game beforehand, but I'm going to try and get out a first look video probably the week of launch. And if I do get around to that, there should be a link to that in the description below. But... When it comes to that kind of persistent system of, you know, keeping the player growing in between the matches, I guess, with as, as you said, with Boner Punks being about four and a half years in development, what was, I guess, your original vision for the game, and has it changed, like, drastically from that? Yeah, it, it's, it's changed a great deal, especially in terms of the macro game. Mm-hmm. So when I first started Bunker Punks, um, it was meant to be a quite quite a short project, definitely not four years, like maybe max a year and a half. Um, and I was really close to getting that done. And the original design for Bunker Punks was after every level, you would be given the choice of three upgrades and you could choose one of those upgrades and keep on playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're familiar with the game Nuclear Throne, it's the exact same thing. And so I'm just about ready to launch Bunker Punks and Nuclear Throne comes out oh. and it's like, you know, I, I, I love Rami and JW. The Vlambert guys are amazing. Um, yeah, I definitely didn't want to be, hey, it's just like Nuclear Throne, but it's a first-person shooter. So um, in hindsight, it may have been a mistake, but I, I stepped back and I said, okay, well, I still want to have this flexibility in how you progress and, you know, have different builds and have this variety in place. So I decided to build a, a base building simulation idea. And the original implementation was ex- way more complicated than the current implementation. It was 
a full sim. Um, you had food, you had electricity that you had to manage, you, your bunks healed over time and you could interact in the bunkers in a whole bunch of different ways in terms of what you could do with different punks and where you could put them in certain rooms to give them certain buffs. Um, but what happened is as I started playtesting this with people, uh, they really bounced off the bunker building hard. They would get into that mode and all they wanted to do was go back and shoot. And they didn't want to spend, you know, eight minutes shooting stuff and then come back and spend eight minutes in the bunker. They just wanted to get into the bunker, level up some stuff and get out. And so through playtesting, um, I realized that I had wasted about a year of development time building this complex simulation. And I had some heart to hearts with some really good friends in the industry and they gave me some really good feedback to just, you know, boil it down, really simplify it, make it a lot more accessible. And uh, so I had to rebuild that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and that general vision has carried forward. So we came out in early access in March of 2016. Uh, there's been a lot of adjustments and, and tweaking and balancing and, and new content, obviously. Uh, but the general idea and the general feel of the game has stayed the same uh, throughout the last couple of years. Hmm. And that's very interesting, Shane, about having that more extensive base building sim metagame or persistent system in the original concept. Because to me, I, that sounds very interesting. But that's always been one of the challenges, even going back as far as the original XCOM, when you have like completely different game systems kind of interacting with each other. Because you always run that risk of, let's say someone really likes System A, but they hate System B. But they're mm -hmm. so required to do that in order to get back to what they perceive as the fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, hindsight 2020, I probably should have just kept it the same way it was and just sent Rami and JW an email and said, hey, guys, this game's coming <laughs> out. It's really similar, but, like, trust me and ask anyone in Vancouver if we're coming for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't mean to, like rip you off um, and then just ship the game because um, that it's the same kind of motivation, right? You're still choosing your development based on a limited number of resources and building towards something that you're going to keep playing. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's a very interesting point for people listening to us. Again, we can once again harp on the virtues of playtesting as a very important way to measure how your game is doing. We've talked over 2018 alone, we've talked to many guests who've had those situations where the playtesters kind of inform on them just what's going on with their game and how they feel about it and why you really just can't develop your game in a closed vacuum for, you know, six months, a year, or in your case, four and a half years. Yeah, I think playtesting is so important. You know, when I was in AAA, we did focus testing, mm -hmm. and that was a lot more about, like, market research and seeing how people liked the concept or just testing if the tutorial worked. Um, but when I first uh, went indie and, and moved back to Vancouver, I became friends with Jamie Chang and the gang at Clay. And at the time, mm -hmm. they were working on Mark and the Ninja. And they did a tremendous amount of playtesting with this game, uh, more than I'd ever mm -hmm. heard or seen any other developer do. And it really made that impression on me. And so when we were working on Shellraiser, we did a ton of playtesting and the game was so much better for it. And it's just, you know, on every game I work on now, if I have a new idea, I rough it in and get it in other people's hands as soon as possible. And ideally, 
you know, strangers who have nothing to gain by, you know, patting my yep. ego and saying they like it. Um, and, you know, the big thing when it comes to playtesting is I see a lot of people, they'll give people questionnaires and things like that. And you learn so much more by just watching people play and watching people react to your interface and seeing where they get lost and where they're moving forward and how long they pause on different screens. Uh, I think you get more out of that than you possibly could by, you know, saying, what were the top three things you liked about this game? What were the top three things you'd change? I would much rather watch them actually engage with it and, and see them mm-hmm. make those decisions and see how it works for them. Mm-hmm, for sure. And uh, I spoke to uh, John Brieger several times. We talked about playtesting just for that very exact reason, that it's very important to get people to look at your game and look at it as – I guess, impartial as possible. As you said, you don't want people just saying, I love your game. It's the best game I've ever played. That doesn't tell you anything about how your game is doing. And I guess here's a very interesting question for you, Shane. Again, as you said, with Bunker Punks, the simulation model obviously was changed to a more streamlined approach. Do you think you will ever attempt that kind of design in another game or another form or another genre, I should say? Without revealing too much about the games that I have planned after Bunker Punks, <laughs> yes. All right. Um, I, I, lo- I love simulation games. I love strategy games. Uh, when I was working on Company of Heroes, I was, you know, as happy as mm-hmm. I could be. Uh, I just, it's the genre that I keep going back to. Um, and it's that systematic thinking that entices me as a player and as a designer. So I definitely want to get into more system simulation-driven games in the future, for sure. Yeah, and that could probably be its own podcast in and of itself about applying these multiple systems to a greater singular core gameplay loop. Again, uh, classic examples would be something like XCOM or even Star Control in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with Bunker Punks, as you said, it is considered a... I hope I don't piss off the rogue fans here. A rogue-like <laughs> in terms of its design, or rogue-lite or rogue-lite. I guess how would you approach it? I, you know, I'm not a stickler, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I, I say rogue-lite now just because people have a very clear definition of what a rogue-like means. You know, whether that includes ASCII graphics, turn-based mechanics, whatever. And I think anyone who cares it will upset them and i don't want to upset anyone and people who don't care they're going to read roguelike and roguelike and to them it means the exact same thing and so i just go with roguelike now Um, but i originally launched with roguelike and i definitely had those conversations (laughs) with that community and uh you know i I appreciate where they're coming from and and they've got a very specific description of what it means to them so I'm, i'm totally cool with roguelite all right but as a very interesting tangent regarding rogue, both roguelike and roguelite design, it really has come a long way, especially in the last decade, with games, as you said earlier, with Spelunky, FTL, In the Breach, even something like the Soul series, which has very loose roguelike elements to it. And yeah. it's just very fascinating about distilling that down. I guess here's a question, and this will kind of infer back onto Bunker Punks, but like, in your opinion, Shane, what do you consider to be, I guess, the core foundation of either a roguelike or a roguelite design? Like, it's not, it, to me, it's never one thing. Uh, the thing that gets me excited about games that build on the systems that worked in Rogue, you know, obviously procedural generation is part of it. Um, 
But I think if you just have random levels, you're not really a roguelike. I think there's a lot of character customization and a lot of varieties and optimal ways to, to play the game. And so, you know, if you play on one ver- one game, you can go for a specific build and that build is decided by your starting stats, specific treasure that you may find, and then, you know, your own preferred play style. And that, that's what I love about these genres in general is you as a player are constantly formulating your own plan going forward, mm-hmm. what you want to do next, how you want to get there. And you have an idea for that. You have treasure that you want to see dropped so that you can play in a certain way. And the rogue genre, roguelikes and lights, they, the best ones will make you reformulate that plan as you go and let the, let you kind of adapt to your surroundings and adapt to your opportunities. So for example, in bunker punks, if you're playing the first level and you get a really rare weapon drop, that might change your whole plan because that could build out to a certain way that you want to play. Um, and those kinds of things are what I want to build towards. So for example, in bunker punks, there's suits of armor. So you've got gear you can wear on your head, your hands, your torso, and your feet. And some of them are very specific. They buff very specific types of weapons. And so if you're playing and in the first three or four levels, you find two out of three or two out of four of the, um, you know, hunter's gear, for example, and that gives you buff with rifle weapons, you might be more inclined to go down a rifle heavy build and try and find more weapons and armor and characters that, perform that way and build your bunker in a way that supports that style of play. So your drops kind of steer you. So character building, uh, customization, indirect game flow in terms of like how the player has to adjust their game flow and then procedural levels. Those are to me kind of the, the pillars that hold up roguelikes and roadlikes. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that just having randomized levels doesn't make it a roguelike. Um, at the time of this recording, I just posted like a massive multi-part feature on Game Wisdom and on Gamma Sutra about what makes a game replayable. And I said pretty much along those same lines that just because you have random elements, doesn't if it doesn't change what the player is actively doing on each run, it's not really driving replayability. And Having, I think one of my favorite things you just said there was about how things kind of grow over the course of a run, that improvisational aspect, that based on, oh, as you said, if I get this really good assault rifle, that means I'm going to start hunting for assault uh, rifle related gear. But then let's say I get an amazing rocket launcher, let's say I get boots that give me plus in my pistol, well then I'm going to change things around that way. And two of my favorite examples of this lately would be something like the latest expansion or update to The Binding of Isaac and the game Slay the Spire, which I think that should be due out at some point. I have no idea when, though. Yeah, that, the Slay the Spire can spend a lot of time in early access. That, that game is amazing, yes. and I, I wish them all the success in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm a... I'm a I'm a former semi-pro Magic the Gathering player, and I love deck-building games like Dominion, Mm -hmm. and so Slay the Spire just tickles all the right nerves. Mm -hmm. And again, like uh, CCGs and that kind of design also works really well with, you know, one card can change everything, just like one item in the Buying of Isaac or getting the right weapon or gear in Bunker Punks can vastly impact the run, which in turn makes each run have that different degree of variance to it. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, with Bungerpunks itself, from what I played, I've like I said, I only played maybe like two or three levels. What have you done in terms of the persistent element to keep players coming back? As you already mentioned, of course, having uh, different rarities of gear. But if you could expand a little bit more in terms of, I guess, how replayable the game is. So when you first start the game, there's... Um just as an, more of an on-ramping technique rather than a grinding mm-hmm. uh, system, there's there's a limited amount of gear available. So every single weapon type, whether it's pistols or rifles or melee, they have three different weapons within that category. And the first one, the most common one, is your. It's pretty good in most situations, right? It's it's your your catch-all, your jack-of-all-trades weapon. Uh, the second tier is. It does something really, really well, um, but it can still kind of be used in a lot of different situations. And the third tier, the rarest ones, are very, very specific in how they can be used. But if you use them well, they can be incredibly powerful. So uh, a good example is in Melee, your your first tier weapon is the bat. And it just hits everything that you can see on the screen and does a little bit of damage to it. Um, it, it Reloads really fast. It doesn't take up any ammo. Um, it's a good all-around weapon. But if you come across something really beefy, it's it's really bad. You need something that can do damage to it. The the third tier weapon in melee is the katana, and the katana is very difficult to use in that it only has a, a very limited hitbox, but it does a lot of damage to them. But it also takes a lot longer to recharge. And so, if you just go with the katana. And the bat, you're in a lot of trouble because you can't hit any anything at a distance. So you're constantly trying to navigate mm-hmm. the best gear, finding the right way to have the gear complement each other. So as you play, all these second and third tier gear gets unlocked, as well as different punks. And each punk has their own uh, passive and ultra and special abilities that you can unlock in the bunker. And then you also get more rooms and room types that you can unlock in the bunker. So when you first start off, your first few games are very streamlined. Um, we want to help the player kind of wrap their head around the mechanics. Mm-hmm. And as you're playing, you're picking up tech. And tech is what you use to unlock additional things at the end of the game. Okay. So once your, your last character dies... You spend that tech, unlock new punks, new brooms, new weapons, new armor, and then you go and you, you play with it, and you start to learn more about how to, to play the game. Mm. Do, is there any unlocks in terms of new enemies or situations along that front? No, and it, that's to me it's intentional. Mm. Um, I, I want the player to know what the playing field is, and within the limits of procedural generation um, and the kind of gameplay that I wanted to go for. There's only so many behaviors that work really well for that kind of environment. And so having unlockable enemies, to me, it felt like you're going to see a ton of enemies as you progress through and your progression through the level is kind of how you unlock new enemies as you get better and you can make it farther and mm-hmm. you understand more about the, the systems that are in the game. Uh, then you're going to just see more as you progress on each game. Okay. And I guess uh, keeping with that, this probably also extends back into roguelike and roguelite design, but in terms of the difficulty, this is one of the more, I think, challenging aspects of designing a game that's meant to be replayed. This was something that I talked about in my series, that you have to be careful in terms of your difficulty. If you make it too hard or too restrictive to win, you can run that case where only if, let's say, item A, B, and C drops, that's the only way you're going to win. 
In terms of, I guess, balancing the difficulty for Bunger Punks with the fact that it's meant to be replayed and the procedural generation, what was your approach to that? So when we first launched into early access, there was only one difficulty level. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, that was probably a really bad idea. I think that most roguelikes and roguelites are very systems heavy, uh, especially the classic ones that are turn-based, where your understanding of the systems within the game are your number is your number one limit into your progress. Uh, when you look at games like Bunker Punks or Spelunky, uh, skill is way more important mm-hmm. than understanding the mechanics of the game. And that was something that I underestimated uh, in the early access launch. But, you know, we did difficulty levels a few months after uh, it launched. And that is always a challenge because if you've got somebody who, you know, plays FPS games competitively versus someone who hasn't played an FPS game since Quake, those are they're both in my audience and they both want to have a fun time playing the game. And so difficulty levels let them have that challenge if they want to go into a really hard battle and see if they can finish it if they're super skilled they can do that um and if they if not then they can just play normal uh it is it is meant to be a game where every hit is very damaging um so not getting hit is pretty key to the game like there's no regenerating heat uh shields or anything like that and so always moving and not and not sitting in one place just getting beat up is is really key and people who play a lot of fps's get that the people who don't um are more inclined to stay in one place and play safe and so i have to make the game rewarding to both of them without feeling punishing Mm -hmm. and i think spelunky and that kind of skill um ceiling is a very important discussion about this because like spelunky is a great example as you just said shane there are people who have spent probably several hundreds a uh, hundred hours or more trying to master that game and for myself because of my background with platforming to begin with i managed to beat the game or beat the hell biome in about 26 hours of play maybe a little bit less than that and right. again it is completely up to the person i used to call i have a term i used to use i call it a subjective difficulty when it comes to these games where it's the person who kind of dictates how hard the game is the same thing goes for any of the dark souls titles and it can be very hard to balance as you said you're going to have people who have never played a first person shooter probably play bunger punks and you're going to probably have those esport or competitive game level fps masters looking at the game at the same time yeah it's tough um one game it's not a a roguelike but one game that has done it extremely well is celeste Mm. and celeste's strawberry challenges (laughs) are amazing like i am not strawberry caliber (laughs) i'm like a straight playthrough celeste kind of guy um but the way that they built that um and you know matt matt thorson is in my opinion, one of the best side-scrolling level designers um, in the modern era. You know, like there's him and the people that are making the Mario side-scrollers at Nintendo. Uh, and mm. I just think their level, their understanding of level design is so much farther than anybody else. And you see Matt at his absolute best in Celeste where you can take, you know, the first, you know, Celeste is a challenging game, but once you understand the core mechanics, 
you can keep playing and you always blame yourself when you die. You never like, oh, the game got me or where did that come from? You're always fully aware of your actions and your consequences. And then when you come onto a level and you see the challenge strawberries, <laughs> you see how hard that is in your brain and you formulate that plan of how to get to that strawberry and how many tries it's going to take to get you there. And that level design depth of something for the really hardcore Twitch players who really want something challenging versus the casual player who just wants to play through, get the story, have some fun challenge. He has threaded that needle like a master and Celeste does it so well. <laughs> I got to ask Shane, did you manage to get to the B or C side levels in Celeste? No. Uh, <laughs> well, I did. And yeah, let's just say that if you're expecting things, if you're expecting Celeste to be a casual platformer, no, it, it is not. It gets it gets mean or angry, I guess you could yeah. say, in terms of what it expects out of the player at that level. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know if they're still online, but Matt Thorson's Mario Maker levels were, you know, you just a ridiculous level of precision and control to be able to play them, and uh, and he's. he's He's great at it, you know. He does. He really gets it. And you know, in Celeste, they, you know, they've got the different easy modes that you can play through uh, as a player too. So it's it's one of those things, right? I just think they did a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. And that could easily fill another tangent too, because it is such a <laughs> fascinating study in terms of you know that very wide uh, variance between a casual and expert player, and. That uh, Celeste obviously is is set in a hard coded game. As we said, the levels are not procedurally generated. You know, they were hand designed to test and challenge players. Now, with a procedural game, whether it's Bunker Pong, Spelunky, FTL, you name it, that becomes a lot more of an interesting challenge because you never know truly one hundred percent what the player is going to get at any given point or any given generation. So I guess with, with that in mind, how did you approach, I guess, the difficulty philosophy or the design philosophy of Bunker Punks? Well, there's a lot of different things that come in to play as you keep playing the game and get farther in. You know, obviously the enemies, uh, they get stronger, they get more HP, they start doing more damage, that um, you get more of them in the level. Um, and the the thing that keeps you going and keeps increasing that difficulty is that management of your resources, management of where you are in the space and just your understanding of how they operate. So when you watch somebody who's really good at bunker punks, that's played it a lot, they can come into a room, um, get a read on the enemies that they can see and come up with a plan for how they're going to get through it because they know some of them are going to rush them. Mm -hmm. Some of them are going to stand in place and shoot. And some of them are going to be strafing and trying to get a good, good beat on you. And then you come up with your plan for the room and somebody drops something that you really want, whether it's tech or a big piece of creds or a lot of ammo that you might need or, you know, health, you know, health is, is pretty rare, but if you see a big health drop, suddenly your decision tree completely changes mm -hmm. because you're, you know, you're at 50% health and you know, if you pick that up, you're going to get another 30 or 40%. So suddenly you might play a lot more recklessly and jump into a room because the health drop drops and, all the drops disappear in bunker punks except for armor and weapons. And that's very much intentional because when you're playing, I want that decision tree to happen in the player and they want to see an opportunity that's going to push them out of their comfort zone or force them to reevaluate their mental plan for how they're going to clear that room. Mm -hmm. 
Now, another aspect of Bunger Punks I wanted to touch on for people listening is the art style. Now, uh, playing the game, we definitely seem to be in a really interesting period of people making that kind of old-school, very pixel-style graphics. So this year alone, I play games like Dusk and Ion Maiden. With mm-hmm. Bunger Punks, was that a decision from the uh, onset to focus on that kind of retro style, or did you experiment with other aesthetics? It was it was very intentional from the beginning. Um, there's a game when I decided I want to do a first person shooter roguelike. There's a game called Delver, which is much more on the roguelike <laughs> RPG style thing than the high action shooter side that Bunker Punks is. But the, when they first launched, uh, they had a very very simple lo fi art style, and I, I really loved it. I also really liked Gun Gods uh, from Vlan Bear. Um, which is, it's just a little free game, um, but it's super fun to play. And Gun Gods, when I decided I wanted to do a first person shooter, I was looking at doing 3D versus 2D. And I looked at what was out there and the chunky minimalist pixel art style really struck a nerve with me. Um, initially I was thinking of going more high res, uh, pixel art, like you would have in doom or something like that. But I just love the simplicity of it because it really let you, get a read on your enemies really quickly because you could build strong silhouettes with the pixels mm-hmm. and make it read really clearly with this, these big exaggerated styles. And so um, once I started doing art tests and experimentation, I, I locked in on the style pretty quick. Uh, um, and, you know, and I love, I love pixel art games, whether they're, you know, first person, third person, top down side scroller. I think there's a lot of beauty in pixel art, and so that was part of the reason that informed it as well. Mm-hmm. And pixel art—that's another like 40 minute to an hour long topic, because <laughs> we have certainly seen the gambit when it comes to pixel style graphics, especially from indie developers over this last decade. Whether it's something you know very simple or uh, lo-fi, like uh, what was it, The Last Door, which is like an adventure game, to even something mm-hmm. as crazily detailed as Owlboy which I think that's been like 10 years in development, crazily enough. Yeah. Yeah, and Iconoclast is another good example Mm -hmm. of just the variety of pixel art and depth in that is really amazing. Um, You know, and you you look at something like Sword and Sorcery, you know, that's this beautiful, abstract, minimalist style that carries so much. Um, There's so much variety to be had. You know, being completely honest, probably in Bunker Punk's business-wise, it probably wasn't the best decision because... A lot of people that play first-person shooters want the latest graphics and they want high definition. Um, there was definitely a little bit of pushback from that mm-hmm. uh, within the community. But the people who look at the trailer, I think they get an idea for what the game is and what I'm trying to capture. And I don't think that 3D graphics help me maintain that high-speed action game that I really wanted to make. And so the minimalist graphics really helped me carry it. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar to when I spoke to uh, one of the Daves. I forget which one who works on Dusk (laughs) at the moment. We did a live cast discussing the game and kind of where it came from. And, yeah, they basically said that they committed to this retro style. That's what they wanted to make the game with. And they basically said, if you don't like it, well tough you know this is what we're doing this is what we envisioned dusk to be and if we change it it really wouldn't be that game anymore yeah exactly um it's it's one of those things you know we see it all the time across all mediums you know there's the recent uh thundercats Mm -hmm. reboot you know and and some people love it and some people hate it um 
I think there's a certain point where if the author's intent doesn't line up with your interests and what you're into, there's so much other stuff out there right now. We are in a golden age of media consumption. Go play something else. Go watch something else. You know, it's, I think people can pursue their direction um, and try and find something really special, regardless of what the style may be. Mm-hmm. I wish you didn't bring up Thunder Catching because that could be another 30, 40 minute debate as well. <laughs> you're you're killing me here in terms of all these tangents we can jump off onto very easily. <laughs> but another aspect of Bunker Punks, and then we'll probably move on because I know we're getting close to about 50 minutes in terms of our recording. One as I really did want to touch on is the actual gunplay because for anyone who's played an FPS this is a pivotal part of that experience and it's one that is probably as diverse these days as pixel art and just aesthetics itself in terms of getting that feel down what did you want to approach with bunker punks that was probably the most important thing that I wanted to get into in the early days of bunker punks was making every weapon feel impactful, but still feel different than other weapons. And that's feeling different from other weapons within the same game is the really difficult part because it's pretty easy to make a single weapon feel good, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but then if you start using all the same tricks and methods of animation and effects and things like that, across all your weapons and they all feel very samey. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this, the shotguns in Bunker Punks definitely suffer from this um, a little bit in that the they all feel kind of samey, but luckily they look different enough and so you can get a feel for which one does what better. Um, but the, in terms of how I got that feel across, uh, you know, is a ton of work, a ton of experimentation, uh, JW Jean Wilhelm from Vlambert did this amazing video, uh, amazing talk called The Art of Screen Shake. And it's probably <laughs> five years old now, six years old. It's still one of the best talks ever on how to make your game feel more impactful with each action. And uh, in the early days, I, I pulled in a lot of those um, suggestions and techniques in bunker punks and it made it feel so much better but every time you add a new weapon you've got to get in there and you've got to tweak things and then you know hats off to power up audio uh the guys that did the sound design on bunker punks because they did a fantastic job of adding that audio variety Mm -hmm. so you can really tell which gun you're using um and capturing the character of each gun was something i think they did an especially good job of because i didn't just send them and say this is the sawed-off two-barrel shotgun. Do it. I say, and this is the sawed-off two-barrel shotgun. I want it to be really, really good up close, but mm-hmm. kind of useless at range because the spread is so random. You can't really control what you're going to be hitting. Um, and this is the kind of play style I want people to play with. And they, they took that direction and just battered it out of the park and really helped sell each weapon. And it's a key part of the process. Mm-hmm. And like another great example, again, I hate to keep going back to Dusk, but between like Dusk, Bunker Punks, and Iron Man, like we're in like that retro, you know, FPS craze this past year or so. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like that feeling of Dusk, like I, I said this on the spotlight, it was even said when I talked to Dave, but the assault rifle, when you use that gun, you just hear that impact. It just does so much to elevate over, which is, you know, like a poop, 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 like that's all yeah. you hear when you're shooting. Yeah, it's all those things coming together, whether it's 
muzzle flash, screen shake, bullet marks in the world, the explosions that can react. Um, you know, there's so many different things. Like one of the things that we put in Bunker Punks that really helps sell it is when there's an explosion anywhere in the world, um, you get a little bit of screen shake mm. and the screen shake is impacted by distance to that explosion. So you can come into a room, fire off a rocket, go around the corner, and then because of audio occlusion, you can barely <laughs> hear it explode, but you'll feel it explode. Nice. And those little things are something that most people won't pick up on just playing the game, but it's something that matters so much in terms of feeling the impact of your actions. You know, if you shoot a barrel and it explodes, which then chains to another barrel exploding and another one exploding, you feel that through the camera, regardless of what you're looking at. So you can kind of get this feeling for what's happening in the world, regardless of where your, your camera fulcrum's looking. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and as you said, all those elements come together to create that element of gunplay. And it's one of those things that I think for like just the passive observer or the consumer, it doesn't sound all that important. But when you look at games like Dusk, Bunker Punks, and even something like Doom 2016, you can just see yeah. how much that really elevates the game beyond just the basic shooting. Yeah, it, it's it's so key. And I went to a really good talk at PAX Dev four years ago, um, maybe three years ago. But I was well into development on Bunker Punks, and it was all they were talking about was was gunplay, getting getting the feel right, and I already done most of the things that they were talking about but there were a couple little things that i picked up on you know they they were talking a lot about more 3d stuff with you know iron sights and reloads and things like that that i simply streamlined out of bunker punks because i didn't want those to be mechanics um but the character of the gun and Mm -hmm. thinking of a gun itself as a character and having a personality is something that really informed how i designed things moving forward Mm mm-hmm now, as a quick time check, we are about 47 minutes into our recording. I know we set about like an hour time. I think at this point, we'll probably move on to a little bit more about kind of the work behind the scenes. So I think it'd be another 10 to 20 minutes if that works for you, Shane. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm here as long as you need All right. Before we move on then, is there any or are there any aspects of Bunker Punks that we didn't touch on that you'd like to elaborate on now? Um. One thing I think that I feel Bunker Punks does especially well that isn't found in a lot of different first-person shooters, and it's something I, I curbed straight from you know Duke Nukem, which is character voices. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are hundreds of different barks <laughs> in the game that the characters can say in different situations. And it was, not only was it really fun to do, you know, we hired professional voice actors and we got them in the studio and we recorded all these takes. I think it really makes each run feel more fun and adds a lot more uh, depth to the game. And it's something that a lot of indies tend to avoid is voice acting. um, Because if you do it poorly, it's terrible. (laughs) You know, it's really, really, really bad. Um, But when you do it well, it adds so much variety and flavor to the game that it, it just, to me, it's something that, when I play Bunker Punk still, there are certain voice calls that only get called in rare situations. And when they come up, it makes me so happy that I added voices to the game and made that decision to just, you know, put aside a good chunk of the budget into bringing in professional actors and paying them their professional rates 
um, and getting that variety in there because I think it's something that, especially in indie games, uh, makes a big difference in bunker punks, but also in first person shooters in general. Um, most first person shooters, there is one character that you play, you know, unless you're looking at things like Overwatch, mm-hmm. um, Team Fortress, you know, they're, they're running in the same direction I'm pushing, you know, which is each character has their own strengths and weaknesses and has their own personality. Um, but if you look at a lot of indie games, people aren't doing it because they're really afraid of it. And yeah, it's expensive and it's time consuming. Uh, you know, when you're paying somebody, you know, $400, $500 an hour, it adds up really fast. Um, but I think the value that it brings to the game and the, the depth it adds to the audioscape of the game is really important. Mm-hmm. And getting that personality of the characters, I think that's another very interesting aspect. Because when we look at most first-person shooters, outside of obviously games like Overwatch and Team Fortress, they usually go for the over-the-top characters, as we see in like Shadow Warrior or the reboot, and of course, more infamously, the Duke Nukem series. Most yeah. of the other time, we just get these silent protagonists. And it's definitely like it feel it has that different feel to it, I guess, wouldn't you say, Shane? Yeah, like I get why they do it, because you want to be your character. So when you're playing Master Chief in Halo, you are Master Chief. It's it's who you are. So he can't say a lot of things in combat because they would not be what you say. Um when you have a game that has different characters and you want to push for character then you can go into that direction. And that's exactly what Overwatch does to a T, you know, like each character feels different. They have more flavor. Um, But I get why if you're a generic protagonist in a first person game that you don't have a lot of lines, because as a designer, you want the player to put themselves in their shoes and you want them to become that character. And so I, I definitely understand why they do it, especially in gameplay. Gameplay barks um, can really pull you out if your what's happening in your head and what you're thinking to yourself isn't reinforced by what the character on screen is saying. It can kind of pull you out of the immersion. So I see why they do it for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, one aspect I just thought I just want to touch on a little bit more with Bunker Punks, going back to the persistence system. As we said earlier in the cast, you definitely uh, streamlined it a lot from the original vision. With After that streamlining process, what kind of approach did you want to take going forward in terms of providing that kind of persistent but not dragging the game down at the same time for people? Um, so when you do the bunker building, your bunker is only for that entire game so when all your punks die your bunker gets reset so your your next run is a fresh bunker it's not like rogue legacy where you've got this persistent Mm -hmm. castle that you're constantly building um and so that that was kind of what i wanted to do was in the same way that you customize your character and the gear the way you want i wanted them to be able to formulate the bunker build that they want to have so when i talk to people who have played the game a lot um, in person, I ask them what buildouts they go for. You know, it's like, oh, you know, well, I went for, you know, upgrading my credits and uh, tech drops early on and using lots of melee weapons so I could make a lot of money. That's, that's what I always do in the early games because they've got the skill to get through those without buffs. And then they take that economic boost to help them in the late game. Other people will go down like heavy health, heavy armor. I want my punks to last a long time. Others will go down, you know, all I do is I pick two weapons and I just buff those like crazy. So sometimes it's rockets and pistols. Sometimes it's shotguns and melee. 
whatever. The more I talk to different people, the more they're formulating that build up in their mind of how they want to build the bunker for the next game. And I think that persistence in terms of thinking about how you're going to play your next game before you even start makes it really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And as we said earlier, it then becomes a sense of improvisation based on what gear and weapons you find within each level. Yeah, exactly. And then also sometimes you can go to uh, the, the the Wasteland Merchant Caravan, which is the store and where you can go buy gear or, or heal your punks. And you can see sometimes rare loot shows up in, in the caravan and you're like, oh, man, there's the boots that complete my set of armor. They're expensive, but they complete it. So I'm going to sell something to get that one thing and then build towards that build out. So there's also a little bit of that randomness within the bunker building side of things as well. Mm-hmm. And that is such a very big point, again, about replayability and the variance that's needed. And I think, again, if we wanted to, we could probably spend another 30, 40 minutes on that topic (laughs) alone. But uh, to move on to our final point, and I just want to say, Shane, it's been a pleasure chatting with you this afternoon. So um, hopefully you'll be free in the future, because I would love to have you on for more of a game dev talk or just talking about anything else in general. Yeah, absolutely. Let me know. This is great. Mm -hmm. But let's move on to the second part, and this will probably be a lot shorter, and that's discussing what it means to be a solo solo developer. For people listening to us right now, whether you are developers or students, again, as we've said, there is no one-stop shop for how to become a game designer or even just game development in general. And that has inferred on a lot of our podcasts and videos that we've done here on Game Wisdom. So for you, Shane, as we said, you've worked on bunker punks on and off in terms of full-time and part-time as a solar developer. What, I guess, from the Oracle, and I'll, like I said, I'll include a link to it down below, what were some of, like, I guess, more of the interesting challenges or even just considerations you had to figure out working on the game by yourself? Um, there's, organization was a big one. Um, I've, you know, when I was doing the BMX thing, I was self-employed, so I'd done self-employment before and, and being able to, you know, what, what holds back a lot of people who are doing solo creative work is just getting your butt in the chair mm-hmm. and getting the work done. Um, that was never a really big challenge for me, but it's something I know a lot of other people struggle with. Uh, some of the things that really caught me by surprise is as a project manager in the game industry, I really prided myself and I continue to pride myself on the ability to hit deadlines Mm. and to plan accordingly. And my inability to plan my own schedules early on um, was terrible. And it it surprised the heck out of me because it's something that as a professional leading teams of, you know, 110 people, 120 people sometimes, I was always capable of hitting the deadlines and making sure the game got, got done and ideally with very little crunch. Um, and so it was, I was really surprised early on how bad my estimates were on how fast I could make things, uh, especially when it comes to art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I started to do was I started to break all my pieces down into smaller chunks. So instead of saying, I'm going to do all the animations for, say, for example, the Proxy Man, one of the main enemies in Bunker Punks. Instead of saying all animations for Proxy Man done, that's going to take two days. Instead, I'll break it down into 
walk cycle, firing cycle, death cycle, corpses, um, hit loop, all the different things that, that can happen and break those down into much smaller chunks and get really granular with it. And that definitely improved my accuracy in terms of being able to estimate my own work. Um, some of the other things that surprised me, uh, it's bugs are really nasty when you're solo. Um, when you've got a team of, you know, five, six programmers, Asking two of them to just focus on bugs for a couple of days is totally a reasonable way to try and get the game done, right? Uh, when you're one person and you spend two or three days chasing down a bug, especially in a, a random generation game like Bunker Punks, yeah. that, that's a huge impact on your productivity. And so um, traditionally in games, a way I'd often developed in the past is you just fix bugs at the end. And... I learned very early on that I had to stay on top of my bugs all the time because like a rule of thumb for bugs is for every five bugs you fix, you're exposing or creating a new bug. Um, so if you have 50 bugs and you fix them all, you still have 10 bugs left, <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, so learning to stay on top of my bugs was something that I learned uh, relatively early on that made a big difference as well. Mm -hmm. And from your article you posted on Gamma Sutra about, again, having that project management background and being able to do that, I think that is a very key point for any developers or students listening to us right now. Not just about doing things solo, but even just working with a small group or class or stuff along those lines. That I think a lot of people tend to either forget or downplay the importance of project management. Because as you're no doubt aware, Shane, I'm sure any developers listening, things can quickly spiral out of control when it comes to game design. And when you're essentially your own boss, that also just aggravates the issue as well. Yeah, it's really hard. You know, for me, I'm very lucky in that I'm a project management nerd. I, I love it. I, I buy management books for fun, even though I, I'm not you know, actively managing a team at my studio. As a consultant and freelancer, I, I do a lot of project management and, and work with teams remotely like that. Um, but even when I wasn't doing that, when we were working on Shellraiser uh, on past projects, if I saw a really interesting project management book, I would just pick it up. So for me, it's something I'm genuinely interested in. Uh, and being completely honest, a lot of managers and games got that position because they have good communication skills. And it's not necessarily because they are good at predicting the future, avoiding uh, or avoiding obstacles and, and good crisis management. Um, a lot of times they're just there because they're, they're good at communication and that puts them on a, a leadership management path. And a lot of times people get put into that position and they don't have the the project management background to be able to deal with the situation that they're in. And so when you're working as a solo developer, uh, it's really important uh, only so far as that being on time and staying on schedule is important to you. Um, if you are a hobbyist game developer and if your game never gets done, then that's totally fine. Project management doesn't matter. But if you uh, have a deadline in mind or a very clear goal in mind, Putting some energy into project management goes a long ways. And with my article on Gamma Sutra, the, the blog post that I did, I really wanted to have things that were more habits of game development and good things to get into rather than building a whole bunch of work for people. Because 
Um, project management can be very complicated. You can get into Gantt charts and long-term road mapping and da-da-da-da-da. You can get into a lot of complicated things. And I wanted it to be as simple as possible. So, you know, just having a simple backlog, learning how to prepare for the work ahead. So one of, one of my favorite things that really improved how I work is deciding what I'm doing the next day before I go to bed so that when I get up in the morning, I know what I'm going to do as soon as I sit down at the desk. And there's a lot less uh, resistance and a lot less impediments in terms of getting me in front of the computer and getting my butt in the chair and just getting to work. If I have it in mind, it's way easier to just drop in, sit down and start working. Mm-hmm. And one more challenging aspect, again, going back to being a sole developer, as we talked about earlier in the cast, when you decide to shift things from the simulation model to more of the streamlined persistence system, one, as we've talked about with many developers, game design can change radically over the course <laughs> of development. And it can be very disheartening for people when, as you said, I think you said you wasted, or you said you wasted about like a year of work going from the sim model to the persistence system. So yeah. I guess, how do you keep yourself motivated when those really big roadblocks tend to show up? Honestly, those real big roadblocks are why I make video games. Mm-hmm. It's, to me, my favorite part about game design is seeing something that I don't understand how it works. I don't understand why it's engaging um, or how it has potential to be engaging. And I, in my, my mind, I might have an idea of where that, that gold or that fun may lie. But once you actually build it, if it's not engaging in the same way that you envisioned in your head, that's the part where I thrive. And that's the part... It's why I want to make games for the rest of my life is because fighting these battles that haven't been won by another designer before or like it's why innovation is so important and why it's so hard. It's it's so easy to go out and clone other people's games because they've all done it before and you can just copy them. So getting the weapons to feel good in bunker punks wasn't a big design challenge. I just had to look at a lot of reference and read a lot of articles and talk to other professionals Mm -hmm. and figure out how to make that work. Now, figuring out how to do bunker building, base building, and sync that into a really fast-paced first-person shooter, that's where I had to learn. So, yeah, there, there was definitely a lot of lost time in terms of pursuing uh, an idea that didn't provide the potential that I, I hoped it had. But I learned so much going down there, and I still had the perspective of on myself and, and the project to say, okay, this is much better for the project. It's much better for bunker punks if I go down this path. And that's okay. I'll have to just leave all this work behind and move forward in a new direction. And I think that that's, it's something that a lot of designers struggle with. Um, what I see quite often, especially from students, is they'll think of something, they'll write it down in a design doc, and they'll make out you know, some maps on some graph paper, and they'll build it and be like, it is done because it functions. And that's, you know... You can make a book as engaging as Harry Potter or you can make a book as engaging as the dictionary. You know, they both have words and those words have grammar and they function. One is much more engaging than the other. Um, And the part of game design that I love, the part that gets me up every single morning and puts me in the chair is figuring out how I can make something more engaging and more interesting in ways that haven't been done before. That exploration of the unknown is, is what I love about game design. So you know, how do I deal with that? It's, it's, I thrive on it. I love it. It's, it's what gets me 
up in the morning. Yeah, but it's that feeling that you're never done learning. I think that's a very essential trait, especially in any creative industry. As you said, it's very easy to just say, I just do this one thing, it's done, you know, I'm never going to touch it again. It's never going to be approved upon. But it's very easy to get stuck in that mindset that, you know, I should just keep to those old ways or just keep to the same approach, especially when the rest of the industry, especially in the independent side, has made rapid advances in terms of game design and game philosophy in, you know, let alone the last eight years alone. Yeah, absolutely. It's the the thing that first blew me away about the indie game scene when I went to indie was uh, uh, Andy Moore. He did a game called Steambirds back in the day. He does a bunch of awesome VR stuff now. And I met him at GDC uh, the March after I had gone indie in January. So I'm just three months as an indie. I'm still figuring this whole thing out. Uh, I'm sitting beside him at a talk at GDC and he, we introduce each other and he tells me about his game. And I had just spent like the last week doing nothing but playing his <laughs> game. So I was super excited to meet him. Um, and I was learning flash at the time and I emailed him after GDC and said, Hey, do you have any links for how to do good save file structure in flash? And he just sent me his source code for how he dealt with saving. Um, and that's something that never happens in AAA, mm-hmm. right? He's like, oh, no, here's my, my saving class for Flash. Uh, unfathomable thinking about that happening in AAA, that somebody would email source code to somebody else. Um, but in the indie scene, everybody supports everyone else, and everyone wants everyone else to yeah. succeed, for the most part. You know, I can't – I it's a gigantic <laughs> scene. I can't speak for everyone. But in terms of the Vancouver scene, you know, we all want each other to survive and thrive and grow. And so, you know, when, you know, I was, I was around for, uh, at the hanging out at the Indie House when Towerfall was in development and every party at the Indie House turned into a <laughs> Towerfall party. We all wanted the game to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And Matt would sit on the floor as we're playing and make adjustments. It's like, oh, we got to adjust the. <laughs> the hang on the, the wall hang time and the wall hang traction. I remember it was uh, Ryan Clark from Crypt of the Necrodancer, myself and a few other people in Matt Thorson who were playing and Matt's just adjusting it on the fly. You know, it's, it's very much, we're all just trying to help each other make better games. And, you know, uh, we've all succeeded at different levels over the last few years. And that's a big part of the community and supporting each other. Cause if you just lock yourself in a mm-hmm. basement and you don't talk to anyone, it's really hard to learn these lessons. But everyone in the indie scene really wants to share and help each other grow way more than than on the AAA side. Because, you know, there's this feeling of confidentiality and privacy. And you've got your own goal of making your game better. And other people are often looked at as competitors, where in the indie scene, it's we look at each other as peers. And we really help each other. Mm-hmm. And I love hearing stories about that sense of camaraderie that can develop from the independent scene. It's always great to hear how everybody wants to succeed, as you just said, Shane. And yeah, like about regarding that sense of direct versus indirect competition. I mean, that's another discussion in of itself. But it's really great, again, that the sheer diversity of games come from the independent scene. It's very rare that you're going to find two games that are, you know, exactly alike and that you have to choose between one or the other. I mean, at this point, I've lost count the number of platformers and uh, what was it? Uh, and FPSs I've played, and they all have that different feel to them. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really key, and you know, it's the 
the common refrain. I can't remember who said it originally, but it was like, yeah, don't be afraid of telling people your game ideas in the indie scene because we've all yeah. got our own games. We want to make way more than we want to make your ideas. So we just want to help you mm-hmm. on your idea. And we're not going to like crib it and go make make it ourselves, especially somebody who's already made a few games. Like some people might come in and be like, yeah, I'm looking for my quick way to glory or whatever <laughs> like that. But, but, you know, they, they get flushed out of the community really fast because they're, they're not innovating. They don't get any press. They're, games don't sell and then they just get demotivated and drop out. Um, but the people who are doing interesting things, uh, keep on pushing forward. There's a whole community that really helps them and it's global. You know, it's, you can go anywhere in the world and find people that, uh, you can work with and jam with and get ideas from. Mm-hmm. I mean, longtime fans of these cats. No, I've spoken to developers in Australia, Taiwan, Brazil, Scotland, you yeah. name it. You know, pick a spot and there's probably somebody trying to make a video game right now. Exactly. Now, and just to elaborate or touch on point you just said there, Shane – regarding again the idea that you should keep your ideas private i think that's another really great point because i know there are plenty of students even i thought this way about 20 years ago that you don't tell anyone your game idea they're just going to steal it and no that can't be further from the truth yeah exactly you know it, it comes full circle you know back to the early days of bunker punks where both Vlambert and I had the same idea for roguelike leveling up in between levels mm-hmm. you know there was just some parallel creative work that happened there um and i, I adjusted course because i didn't want to you know step on their toes they got the game over first and that's totally awesome mm-hmm. um but it's it's one of those things where you know if somebody says they're really worried about people stealing their idea and if you tell them not to be and they're still worried about it you, you can't do anything to help those people you know their their game should be getting out and getting play tested and getting feedback from people and if because there's way more value in that than there is in the nugget of gold for your idea mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, another point that I want to touch on, I think you may have answered this when we talked about hitting those uh, walls or those hard stop points. But one of the things that's also very alluring can be very challenging and damaging as an independent developer is that feeling that with that complete freedom comes I can put whatever the heck I want in my game. We always hear, you know, I'm going to build the procedurally generated multiplayer, it'll have infinite replayability, you know, amazing game, I'll spend, you know, 15, 20 years working on it, it will be perfect. And this also is about the challenge of drilling down what your core gameplay loop is. So I want to get your thoughts on this regarding... As a solo developer, and even just as an independent developer as well, how do you keep yourself focused on, I want to make my game, you know, X, Y, and Z. You know, this is the core reason. But at the same time, you also have to be malleable, as we've talked about before, with the sim system that was originally in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's... One thing that I'm, I'm definitely doing going forward on my, my next couple of games, at least, is making sure they're very small. Mm-hmm. Uh, in scope and putting very tight boundaries on the amount of content I can put in in terms of like time consuming content. For example, if you're making a character with animated or game with animated characters, um, that just adds a ton of scope to your game because there's a ton of time to get it done right. And what a lot of people don't understand is that when you are committed to doing something, you're not going to get it right the first time. So every time that I put a new gun into Bunker Punks, 
I didn't just draw it and animate it and put it in and it was done. I drew it and put it in and then I redrew it and redrew it and redrew it and I animated it and then I reanimated it and then I reanimated it and then I balanced it and adjusted it some more. Um, so everything that you commit to putting into your game is way more time consuming than the, just the act of putting it in, you know, it's, you have to polish it and iterate on it and get it to the point where it's really good. And so keeping your motivation for a really long project, it, it's difficult. Um, for me, there's always, you know, that, that goal of the final product. And that's what always keeps me going in games is, is conquering that creative battle, figuring out the things that make it work and then putting them together in a really cohesive package. That's what gets me excited. So I'm, I've never had a problem staying motivated over a long time. I've never, like, not once over the last four and a half years have I been like, man, I really don't want to work on Bunker Punks today. Like, every morning I get up, like, yeah, let's go do this. This is going to be fun. Um, but I know people that really do struggle with that, and I think it's it's a very real challenge, especially when you've got linear scripted gameplay and predefined levels. Playing that first level 20 times a day for four years, I'm sure is, is really, really difficult. Um, but for me, it's, it's never been a challenge and it was never a challenge to me in AAA either. Um, working on with teams, it's, uh, it's never been a challenge to stay motivated because you're still building something that you want to get into other people's hands. And that, that goal is always the fun part. Mm -hmm. And keeping that motivation again, that is a very important part being an independent developer, let alone doing it solo. Because as we've said, and I'm sure you've probably seen people do, it's very easy to lose that motivation, and you have to be really careful there. And on the flip side of that, then there are people who can be blinded by that passion, and they'll just commit all in to certain ideas without knowing whether or not it will succeed. And as you said a few minutes ago, Shane, going forward, focusing on smaller projects and make sure that you are working on something that, you know, people want to play is a very important point about doing this as a living. I've spoken to developers like Cliff Harris and Jake Burgett over this past year about being able to view things as a business and understanding what you need to do to keep the lights on at the end of the day. Yeah, Jake's actually an old friend of mine, so I'm, I'm glad glad to get the shout out for Jake. He's awesome. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, it, it's as much of a business as you want it to be. Uh, I think there was the idea of being an indie developer for a long time was very much like during the post indie game, the movie boom, and that whole side of things. There was it, it was a very specific thing what it meant, and now we've got a lot of hobbyist game developers who are doing stuff on itch and things like that. Um, I think what really kills a lot of first games is scope because everyone wants to make their, their dream game that they've always wanted to make. And, you know, they should just make Space Invaders or Pac-Man or Asteroids and put it out on itch for free just to go through the pipeline once to understand how complicated and time-consuming and challenging it is to get a very, very, very simple game done. And then when you look at making your, you know, dream huge mega game that's, you know, a dynamic MMO with 40 different character classes and da-da-da-da-da. Um, I hear those conversations all the time. And it's in, invariably the person who has that dream has never made a game before. Mm -hmm. And if you make a very small, very simple game, put it out there, put out a couple of tweets, um, share it and see what happens, you're going to learn a lot more than you will if you 
dig in deep and spend a long time on it. And this, this is why when I first went indie, the first thing I did was made, made a little flash platformer, you know, cause I knew that if I wanted to make some of the bigger games that I had in my head, I had way too much to learn to ever get those games done. So I knew, you know what, there's a lot of source code out there for platformers. I was using the Flixel engine by Adam Saltzman. Um, there was a ton of reference code for that. So I could learn how to program by looking at other people's codes and figure out how to make it work and get it done. But I also knew like feature wise, scale wise, it was all very finite. I was going to have, you know, whatever 12 levels that are playable, three different tile sets, six different enemies, you know, all these things were very clear and defined and manageable. But if I went back in time and gave myself advice, I would have said, make an even simpler game. I would have said, you know, make super crate box, which is one level for, for, you know, whatever, however many weapons are in super crate box. It's a lot, a few different enemies and you're done, you know, cause then you're going to learn a lot more. And so just keeping that, that scope down for new developers uh, on their first game is so important because it's so easy to fall off that cliff. And this is something, you know, Jake talks mm-hmm. about all the time because his first games were very much, you know, fan games and, you know, platformers and things like that. And then he got his teeth into the casual side of things and really started getting excited about developing match three games and solitaire games. And he's very, very good at it. You know, like if you, <laughs> if you play another solitaire game that is not done by Jake Burkett, it's not as good as Jake Burkett's solitaire mm-hmm. games. He's he's mastered the genre and he's at the top of his game and making those games. But the scope is very clearly defined and he knows uh, where to put those walls up, which is really key is keeping those those boundaries in that box uh, around you when you're building your first few games or even when you get later on in your career and you're approaching it as a more of a business like Jake does. Mm-hmm. And this, again, being able to keep to a scope, understand what you can, can't do. This is why a lot of developers have said the advice of fail small, that when you're starting out, you don't want to, again, put everything, all your money into an idea you've never done before. Yeah, exactly. Um, Like I I mentor at Vancouver Film School, and every once in a while, um, one of the students will try out the indie path after they graduate. Um, and there's one, I, I won't, won't say his name and his game, but, uh, he got some investment from friends and family and some other people and he built a small team and he built a game and straight up the game was good. It was a good game, but it, it sold terribly in, in, in the tens of copies. Like it, it did extremely poorly on the market. Um, and it wasn't a reflection of the quality. It was a reflection of the appeal for that game. And he learned a very expensive lesson about the market. Uh, and the business side of games. And, uh, you know, if he had focused a little bit smaller on scope and done a couple other things better, he might've been in a much better situation and he would have been able to learn that lesson before going through all of his investors' money and putting himself in a bad situation. So there's definitely, there's a reality check when you first post your first game uh, in terms of what the appeal is, what the potential audience is, and and, uh, how much press coverage you can get for your game. Mm -hmm. Now, I know we are approaching about an hour and 20, and again, we could probably sit here and talk for like the next <laughs> few hours, but I'm sure you have to get going in the next few minutes. I won't keep you all day long, especially with Bunker Punk's new out in a few days. <laughs> but Yeah, no, it's, uh, to, to be completely honest, the game's done. Okay. Um, I just, I just got to put in a couple of flags for unlocking your last playable character. Uh, I'm going to be uploading the build. Uh, probably after this call and having it on the beta branch online for a few beta testers. And then I just got to flick the switch on Monday. Um, 
but again, that's the project manager in me. My my initial early access launch was a crazy amount of crunch and was extremely poorly managed. And I promised myself never again. So uh, time-wise and schedule-wise, I'm doing good for this game. Great. And I think that takes me to my final set of questions. And again, we could sit here and probably there's still probably a few more hours of discussions we could have about <laughs> this. But this is a question that I'm sure a lot of new developers and students would probably want to know. As a solo developer, what do you think was like the easiest thing for you to do while designing Bunker Punks? And what was like, I guess, the most challenging thing at just doing things by yourself? Um, the easiest thing to do is to make radical decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if I was working, um, at a studio like Relic and we decided we were going to completely redesign the macro game from a bunker simulation into a nonlinear skill tree, that decision would have to go up the chain and down the chain and through marketing and a whole bunch of people would have had to have gotten on board to make a huge decision uh, like that. So in terms of the easiest thing, um, I don't need to convince a lot of people when I'm making big design direction changes for the game, which is great. You know, there's, there's no drama, there's no conflict. Um, all my collaborators are super great to work with. So when I tell them, you know, Hey man, we're completely changing the bunker building. They just say thumbs up and say, what, what sounds do you need? Awesome. Let's keep doing this. Uh, so that's definitely the easiest part. Um, the hardest part is, that it's still just a lot of work to make a game, you know? Um, the work is, it's something I love, I thrive on it, but it is a lot for one person to tackle, uh, especially when it comes to art, um, because art is extremely time-consuming to get done right and requires a lot of iterations, just like programming and code do. Um, but it's it's difficult to have that whole scope in your head and to be able to stay productive and at a level of uh, a skill level that, that you want to reach within each discipline. So you've got to be a good designer. You've got to be a good programmer. You've got to be a good artist. You've got to be a good project manager. You've got to be good at doing the business side. You've got to be good at doing the marketing side. It is a lot of work just to do the work itself, but also to continue to grow and develop and uh develop new skills and grow in each one of those disciplines so just the work is the hardest part mm-hmm. and speaking about again all the amount that goes into designing a game what are your thoughts on the pr side because this is something that again a lot of new developers tend to struggle with when it comes to marketing and getting their game out there yeah it's honestly pr and marketing in general in games constantly changes and the rules are constantly changing so you know for example when i was back working in AAA, uh working on company of heroes there were only a few rts games coming out a year and so it was relatively easy to get featured in a magazine um you know i wouldn't say it was easy to get the cover of a magazine but we got a few covers as well um it's there was a lot less happening now, if you're a, an indie game developer and you're trying to figure out why no one's talking about your game, it's probably because you've given them nothing to talk about. Um, and I think that a lot of people believe in the build it and they will come, uh, which honestly sometimes happens extremely well in the game industry, uh, especially with, you know, uh, I look at Devil Daggers kind of came out of nowhere. Um, Undertale, if you weren't in the Homestuck community, really came out of nowhere. But if you were in the Homestuck community, you knew about Undertale for years. 
Um, there are big hits that came out of nowhere with very little press before they launched, um, but then got a lot of press afterwards. Uh, so there is some truth to that, but there's also, you know, when you're looking at PR, you've got to look at the person who you're sending the email to, what their inbox is like, you know, and what their challenges are. So my approach to uh, a, good, a good example is the marketing of uh, Shell Razor. And so uh, on mobile, I knew the number one thing that would move the needle in terms of sales is getting featured by Apple. And we knew about three months in that we had a really good game that was really fun and really unique. Um, but what we decided was that we wouldn't talk about the game. We wouldn't re reach out to press and start promoting the game until it was in Apple's hands. And so the day we submitted the bill to Apple is the same day that I emailed everyone within the mobile press and all my contacts in the traditional press uh, about Shell Razor and put the trailer out. Because what I wanted it to happen was people at Apple are checking out the game saying, hey, this is really cool. And I just read about it on, you know, Pocket Gamer or I read about it on IGN or something else. I wanted it to be in their sphere. So say, oh, everyone's talking about this game and it's really good. Should we feature it? Yes, we should. Um, and there were lots of other factors that I'm sure went into that, but that was the whole point of the marketing was to get Apple to feature it because that's what moves the needle. Uh, what, what happens in games now is, you know, getting coverage on a website like Kotaku or Rock, Paper, Shotgun is always great. And it, it definitely moves the needle a little bit. But getting featured by a high-profile YouTuber or a really popular Twitch streamer has a much bigger impact on, on the bottom line. But they're not going to open your email unless they've heard of you because their inboxes are full of people sending them requests to stream the game. You know, they've got hundreds and hundreds of unused keys sitting in their inbox if you're a really high-profile streamer. So how do you get on your on their radar? Well, then you've got to do traditional press like Kotaku and Rock, Paper, Shotgun and reaching out to the, the blogs and the magazines and the press on that side. And so it's it's still a challenge. It's going to be a challenge and a totally different one six months from now. But the big thing is just keeping in mind that when you're sending out that email, reaching out to the press, um, attending a trade show is you've got to put yourselves in the press's shoes and say, what are they looking at? How do I get on their radar? What's different about my game that can help me uh, get exposure through them and give them a story to tell, mm -hmm. which is super hard. Yeah. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do. Definitely. And it's only gotten harder with the rise of YouTube and streaming as becoming these very big businesses, not only for the people who do it, but for developers and publishers trying to reach out. And again, that's another major topic we could jump onto here. <laughs> but yeah. with that said, I know we are getting a little bit late into our stream, so or I'm sorry, into our recording. So I think we'll begin to wrap things up. And like I said, Shane, if you're free in the future, it will be great to have you back on. Yeah, absolutely. I love this. This is great. Yeah, not a problem. So before we end things for today, I guess as a I guess a quick bit of like logistics for Bunker Punks. As we said at the start, by the time people are listening to it, the game will be out. For uh, those people listening to us right now, what I guess what platforms are you aiming it to be on, and how much is it going to be? 
So Bunker Punks will be available on Steam and the Humble Store. Uh, hopefully, eventually on itch.io as well. Uh, it's going to be $15 US. Uh, it'll have a launch discount. Uh, I think it's 15%. Um, and it'll be on sale, I think, for the first week. So that's a good time to pick it up. It's coming out on May 28th on the Monday. And I hope everyone really enjoys it. Great. And I know you kind of teased this a few times in the past, but you already have plans for whatever next project you're going to work on, right? Yeah, like there's a bunch of different ideas. I'm not really ready to announce anything yet, but I've got, I'm definitely going to be working more in the simulation space, uh, doing a lot more uh, in the same way that roguelikes keep you engaged. Mm -hmm. Simulation games are very nonlinear and keep you engaged in a lot of different ways as well. And so I want to play around with that. Uh, and doing a lot of experimentation on the narrative side as well. So that's kind of what's on my radar going forward. Great. So with all that said, we are going to wrap things up for this podcast. Again, by the time you're listening to this cast, Bunger Punks will be already out. So be sure to uh, check it out as well as my first look video and Shane's piece on Gamma Sutra about solo indie dev work. Because again, it's all very fascinating stuff, and it's things we can spend like an hour to two hours on, like it's nothing. But I would once again like to say, Shane, it was great having you on, and definitely the best of luck with the release of Bunker Punks in a few days. Thank you very much. It was great being here. Not a problem. So with all that said, we're going to wrap things up for this week's cast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like to support Game Wisdom, there are several ways of doing so. If you like to write a guest piece for the site or be a future podcast guest, you'll find information and links under Submissions Wanted. I'm always looking for new people to talk to, so please send me an email, josh at game-wisdom.com. You can follow me on Twitter at GWBicer for updates and thoughts from me throughout the day. And of course, check out the Game Wisdom YouTube channel for daily videos discussing game design, industry topics, and a variety of developer live casts. And last but not least, you can find me on Patreon, patreon.com slash GWBicer, to help support the site and what I do. And you'll also find a, the link to our Discord channel, now open to everyone at the basic tier. So uh, that's my little end of video or end of podcast speech. For people who want to follow you, Shane, are there any uh, social media platforms you want to plug now? Yeah, so uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Shane Neville, S-H-A-N-E-N-E-V-I-L-L-E. I'm pretty active on Twitter. We also have uh, Tumblr, Bunker Punks on Tumblr, and Shane Neville on Tumblr. Um, really active on the Bunker Punks Tumblr right now, but the Shane Neville stuff will be picking up once uh, we start working on the new game. And uh, yeah, and then also you can like Bunker Punks or Ninja Robot Dinosaur on Facebook to stay up to date on news as well. Great. So with all that said, folks, we're going to end things here. Have a great rest of the week, and I will be back next time for another discussion about the art and craft of game design right here on Game Wisdom.